Uh, if you're uh, new with us, we have been uh, journeying together through a, a series of talks that we've called uh, Lies We Believe. For a number of weeks now, we're getting close to the end. And essentially what we're, we're aiming to do is analyze current, often thoughts that we have and ask, in light of Scripture, do we find these things to be uh, true and helpful or do we find them to be false and harmful? So we've walked through a whole bunch of different uh, ideas and each time we're trying to hold up a thought and to analyze it in light of what God says and then to ask Him to, to, to convince us to change our minds from believing that particular thought to believing something else. There's a variety of good resources out there that uh, have been helpful and uh, seek to do that. They seek to take things that we think and then help to reshape our minds. Uh, one of the great books out there that has helped me personally a lot is called uh, Note to Self. It's by a guy named Joe Thorne. Very simple little thoughts, but they're trying to take daily life and al- analyze it in light of uh, the scriptures. I'd love to give this away to somebody who would find that helpful. Wally, come on down. Wally doesn't normally raise his hand. Give Wally some props. And you are by far the best dressed in the room. <laughs> Love you, brother. There um, are more of those back at the bookstall that um, you can give a donation for if you're interested. Uh, today we're uh, going to have a lot of fun, I think. We all have uh, what some people call an, an idolized or an idealized self. Now, before you think I've been... Uh, hanging out with Tad, our resident psychologist, too much. Just, just humor me for a few minutes and let me see if I can explain uh, what I mean. You and I have a particular way we view ourselves. We have a, an image of how we want other people to think about us. And sometimes that image doesn't really look like the real person. It doesn't look like the real self, if you will. Sometimes the idolized or the idealized self can be pretty disconnected from the real self. Kind of like this guy in the picture. (laughs) Just doesn't view himself like he really is. Now, the tricky thing is that we have an image that we want to portray to other people, and then we have ourselves as we really are. The longer those two realities exist apart from one another, the further that gap seems to get between uh, the two. The, the more the image is different than who we really are, the more disconnected our lives begin to become. So think of it like this. Um, who is the real you when, when nobody's watching? When there's no social media, when the pretensions are gone, when no one is around for you to try to impress or to convey a particular image of yourself, what do you like? What do you like in those moments? In those moments when it's quiet and private, what's the real you? What do you believe? What do you think about? What captures your heart? What do you drift off and dream about? What worries you? What excites you? What makes you sad or angry? What do you think about God? If 
in those moments, somebody could somehow appear and broadcast your thoughts for everybody else to know, what would that experience be like uh, for you? That's, that's the, the real you. But, but then there's the you that's the you in public. The you in work, at school, in gym, in the bar, in the movies, apartment complex. The moments when we tend to portray an airbrushed version of ourselves, that's the idealized self. The self you think you're supposed to be. The self you want other people to think you're like. You got it? Yes. All right, now turn to the person on your left and tell them you're not really who you think you are. All right? Some of you laughed a lot more than others. I'm not sure what to make of that. Now, uh, this can go a lot of different ways. In terms of the the trajectory of what happens when we live like this, it can pan out lots of different ways. But one of the things that can happen, and it'll be be what we talk about today, one of the things that can happen is the, the airbrushed version of yourself, the idealized self, can become such a part of you that you lose sight of who you really are. That the, the airbrushed version that you're trying to present to everybody else, that initially you know, that's not really me. You can begin to believe that, that lie and take it on as your identity. So much so that we don't really understand who we are anymore. In other words, we can convince ourselves that we're people we're not. We can create a person that doesn't really exist. And so the Bible has all kinds of interesting things to say that are helpful in those kind of situations. Just for example, Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Now this is for free. This is an aside, all right? The, the happiest people I know are people that believe that verse. By far. The people that are the most enjoyable to be around. The people that know the most joy are people that live that way. Why? Well, they're people that have come to know who God has made them to be. They don't have to have an airbrushed version of themselves. They're free from that trap. They're aware of who they are. More importantly, they're aware of who God is. And they've come to be at peace with both. They see themselves in light of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And so they're at peace. There's no disconnect between the self I portrayed everybody else and the real me. They're just content with who God has made them to be. So I think that verse is massively helpful to us. But that's really for another day. What, what drives the disconnect between the airbrushed version of you and the real you tends to be one of the three core states of the human heart. We talked about this in the membership class this morning. 
So those of you that weren't there, you get another shot at this. The, the human heart, apart from God's intervention into it, so not the blood pumping thing inside of us, but the, the immaterial core of who you are, the, the steering wheel of your life on the inside. That, that's your heart. Uh, be thankful you don't live in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament it was your bowels. So now it's your heart. It's been cleaned up a bit. Your heart is the, the steering wheel of your insides. Your heart, apart from God, tends to be defined by guilt, pride, or shame. Let me see if I can briefly unpack that. Guilt is a nagging sense of failure. It's that, that gnawing on the inside that I've, I've messed up to such a degree that I'm a condemned person. It's an awareness of sin and wrongdoing. It's having fault and knowing it. It's being torn up on the inside. Now, guilt can be real or it can be imagined. It doesn't really matter for it to have effect upon you. So some of us, the way we relate to stuff in everyday life, when all this junk is stripped away, the core fundamental thing that makes our heart beat is a sense of guilt. I've not done what I was supposed to do. I've done the thing I was never supposed to have done. And whether that was yesterday or 10 years ago, you're defined by what you've done. And no amount of good is going to make up for that. You can't tip the scales in your favor. But others of us are really different. We're defined not by, not by guilt over stuff we've done, but over attaboys for what we've done. We're defined by pride. Pride is an arrogant attitude of having it all together. It's, it's a self-confidence. It's a worship of self. It's an inability to see your own inabilities. Some of us, at the core, when everything's stripped away, really fundamentally believe that we should puff up our chests because we are all that. We are the airbrushed version of ourselves. That's pride. Now, some of us were not really defined, our hearts don't really beat by guilt. They don't really beat by pride. They beat by shame. In my mind, this is the saddest of the three. Now, shame as we use the term today tends to be not guilt over what we've done and not a puffed up sense of self, but an internal brokenness because of other things people have done to us. So it's not what I did, either negative or positive. It's what's been done to me. It's the shrapnel on our souls of other people's sin. That's shame. Some of us have a haunting sense of disapproval and disappointment. So what drives the disconnect between the person you really are and the airbrushed version of yourself? What's between the two? It's guilt, pride, or shame. The image I'm trying to convince others for, is, for that is true about me is my effort to get through guilt, pride, or shame. 
So none of us want to feel those things. They're not particularly positive things. We don't enjoy them. And so we seek to press past them by the airbrushed version of ourselves. Are you with me? Okay. Have I convinced you? Probably not yet. Let me try through my own story a little bit. Uh, As far back as I can remember, uh, I hated, hated, hated school. Loathed it. I mean, even as a little child. I always, as far back as I can remember, have felt stupid. Dumb, inadequate, unable to keep up. Uh, That's what I wanted to do every time I went to school, was just cry. I uh, really stunk at spelling and reading and math, which is back then essentially all you did in school. Um, I can remember, uh, honestly, into college, being like morbidly afraid of getting called on to read in public. Uh, Isn't this hilarious that I'm standing up here doing this now? I mean, it's literally inside, torn up in knots that the teacher's going to call on me to read out loud. Because I couldn't do it very well. I get all turned around and tongue-tied and just make a blubbering fool of myself. I can remember uh, doing everything I could to try and not be at school the day of the, sc- the spelling bee when they call you up and you stand in the front and you have to spell a word. I can remember doing everything I possibly could do so I wouldn't get called on to go to... There was these things called chalkboards. And, <laughs> and do math on the board. Because then everybody can see what a freaking moron you are. Scared to death. That was the way I related to my school. So I carried a lot of guilt because I couldn't do what I was supposed to, to do. I couldn't deliver. But I also carried a lot of shame because an awful lot of classmates and teachers said some really hard things to me. And so the way I dealt with all of that, that bucket of guilt, pride, and shame, was to create an airbrushed version of myself. If I can't be uh, liked and comfortable and at peace at school by being good at academics, then I'll just do it by being the class clown. And so starting in kindergarten, I uh, developed an apt knack for, um, for humor in the classroom. And uh, there was some fantastic things I came up with. I mean, just fantastic. <clears throat> the culmination of all of that was uh, my freshman year of high school. I uh, was taking bottle rockets. Do you remember those things? They're hard to find now. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate. But I'd break the ends of them off, and I found a way I could time uh, lighting them with a long fuse and ramming them in the holes of a locker so that when somebody opened it, it would right in their face and they'd wet themselves and I would laugh profusely. So I developed the habit of doing this at school and one day um, it started a fire and they had to evacuate the school. So um, I was permanently expelled from Tennessee public schools. Like, don't ever come back, ever. So we had to move out of state as a result. 
Um, <clears throat> now, uh, unless you think that went away, uh, my senior year of high school, my guidance counselor, so the person that, that calls you in and they give you the peps, the pep talk and they look at your grades and they say, your future is going to be fantastic. You've been such a great student. You've done a great job. So that person told me, um, you've been a real pain and you ought to think of something other than college for your future because you won't make it. So I was in college before I ever read a book. I simply cheated my way through and was... uh, constantly making fun of other people and doing practical jokes. My idealized self was an outgoing, popular, confident jokester. And that's what other people saw me as. But inside, I was lonely, embarrassed, frail, guilty. I could go on and on and on. So the, the real me looked nothing like who I portrayed myself to be. Now, you've got a story too. I don't know yours, and maybe it's not as ridiculous as mine, but there, there is an image that you, have, that you have portrayed. And you may have done it so well for so long that you've convinced yourself that that's who you really are. But the reason you've done that is because you're trying to get over guilt or shame or pride. Every single one of us in the room. Our words and our actions around us reveal the disconnect between who we really are and who we're trying to portray we are. So for example, if you're a gal in the room and you hit the gym every day and you eat like a little tiny bird, maybe you think your sense of identity is wrapped up in having a particular body shape. Everyone applauds you because of the way you work out, how healthy you are, the compliments you get, plenty of stares from guys. But that's an airbrushed version of you. Inside, you're broken and empty. Why do you do that? Well, maybe it's shame. Maybe your dad told you you were fat when you were a kid. And now you carry that around with you everywhere you go. And the, the lens through which you view yourself in the mirror is your dad's words, fat. And it doesn't matter how many times you go to the gym, you're never going to work that fat off because it's not really there. Or maybe it's guilt. Maybe you used to be a comfort food eater. So... Something bad would happen, and the way you'd get over that is to eat a Snickers. And you did that enough that you got overweight. And so now you're trying to pay penance for that sin. You're trying to atone for it through exercise. But it's not going to work either. Or maybe it's pride. Maybe you really fundamentally believe life is about appearance. And so you've driven yourself to sickness because you're obsessed with image. I don't know which one it is or some derivative thereof, but it's one of those. Because that's the way the human heart works. That's the direction the steering wheel goes. Day in and day out, you live a lie. 
That physical attractiveness will satisfy your soul. And friend, it won't. Maybe you're a guy in the room and you find your whole sense of worth from your work. It doesn't matter what the job is or what's actually expected of you. You kill yourself working ridiculous hours. And I'm all for hard work, but you don't have a life. You have a work, and that's it. Maybe you do that because you have guilt over some mistake you made in the past and a job you lost. Maybe it's shame because you feel like you couldn't measure up at something in the past, and so you're trying to make up for it now. Or maybe it's the pride that you've now reached that corner office and therefore you are who you've always airbrushed yourself to be. But day in and day out, you're living a lie. You're believing that work will give you a sense of worth. And it won't. It won't. You're filling up a bucket with a hole in the bottom. Maybe you're a college student or even a high school student, and everything in life is about your grades. You've chosen to believe that your entire future rests on your grade point average and the amount of clubs you're in. I have never once had a job interview where they asked me, so how many extracurricular activities did you do in high school? And yet we've created a system through which Sometimes high school students are busier than their parents. And they destroy their insides trying to prove something to somebody. Maybe you believe your worth is found in how much money you have. So everything in life is about getting more, bigger house, nicer clothes, better vacation. You believe the lie that you are what you own. Guilt, pride, or shame can drive that. Maybe you're one of the, somewhere between a fourth and a third of the women in this room who were sexually abused. You face some kind of sexual trauma. Do you realize how many of us that is? That's still a dark, hidden part of our society for some reason. And we need to shine the light on it in here. Deep down, you feel dirty, used, nasty, and rejected. You go into meetings at work, or maybe you're a mom and you go to the park, meet other moms, and the fundamental way you feel is inadequate because somebody more powerful than you took advantage of you in a vulnerable spot in life. That's shame. People all around you might be admiring the real you. But you can't even see the real you because of what somebody else has done to you. Friends, the the trap of finding our worth in what we accomplish and what we look like in other people and how much money we make and what's been done to us is crushing. It can never, ever, ever, ever satisfy God's desire is that we would be free of all of this nonsense. That we'd rise above it. The work of presenting ourselves as somebody we're not is enslaving. And it's exhausting. 
Would you imagine for me, with me, what it would feel like to be comfortable in your own skin? Would you imagine that, not in a prideful way, but with a heart of gratitude? Imagine being content with what God's given you. Content with who He's made you to be. Imagine the joy of laying your head on your pillow at night, knowing you didn't pretend. Not a single time. That you didn't put on airs today. That you could just be. Wouldn't that be amazing? No mask. The real you. Friends, the biblical word for all of this is a surprising one. Maybe the last word you'd expect. The Bible calls this idolatry. It's worshiping stuff and people in reputation rather than worshiping God. One of our greatest mistakes is our tendency to find worth in things that are unable to bear that load. It's to ascribe value to something greater than the value it contains. So when, when a country has a currency that's n- no longer as valuable as it once was, it doesn't do any good to claim my dollar is really worth $3 if it's worth 50 cents. And so you have to adjust the value of the dollar based on what's going on around. And if we take work or the shape of your body or whether or not you're able to have a child... Or, or whether or not you have a spouse. Or whether or not you've done something really horrible, awful. Or what's been done to you. Or the name on the label of your dress or your shirt. If you take something like that and you ascribe to it the value of the worth of a person then you're placing on it a weight that it cannot possibly hold. It will collapse. Now you can prop it up in your mind and you can create an idol that you'll bow down before. But it's just laying on the ground a worthless piece of junk. The scriptures call that idolatry. We tend to worship the sense of worth that looks or work, or people, or accomplishments, or possessions can give us. Now, why do we do that? We give our highest allegiance to the things that we think will lessen our sense of guilt, pride, or shame. That's the reason we do it. It's not arbitrary at all. One of the most helpful things you can possibly do is learn how to discern what's going on in your own heart. Most of us are completely unaware. We're complete morons. We live every day out of motivations that we don't even recognize we have. Like when I was in school as a child, I didn't put the connection together that the reason I keep going to the principal's office is because I feel stupid. The reason I keep flicking spit wads at the back of people's heads to get people to laugh is because I I can't do the math problem. I didn't know that. 
you're no less confused probably. Friends, we're always, always, always searching for identity in something. We have to because we're, we're the creature, not the creator. We're the image bearer, not the image itself. And so there is something in every single one of us that causes us to look outward in order to get over guilt, pride, and shame and to have a sense of satisfaction and worth and purpose in life. You can't not do it. doesn't matter what time period you live in, what country you're in, what language you speak, how much money you have. That's still the posture of your heart. The steering wheel is going to go that direction. You'll find identity somewhere. And when you boil it all down, basically you have two choices. You can find identity vertically. My identity is rooted in who Christ is and what God has done for me. That's the way I relate to everything in life. Or you can try to find it horizontally. In work, in experiences, in the shape of your body, education, sexual encounters approval of people, what's in your bank account. Anything you can do to try and fill the hole that guilt, pride, and shame have caused. But if you remember one sentence today, I hope it's this. Identity cannot be achieved. It's something that has to be received. You cannot achieve it. It will not work but you can receive it. I'd like to show you that from the Scriptures. So if you have a Bible, look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are some the back left of the coffee bar. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the last third of it is called the New Testament. The first couple of books go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the stories of Jesus when he was alive and present on earth. John chapter 4, we will find this simple fact. Real life and worth is found in Jesus. Identity has to be received from God. It can't be achieved through living life. Now, there's a whole lot in this story, but we just have time to hit the high points. So look with me at verse 7, if you would. John 4, 7. A woman from... uh, There came a woman from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans. We might as well just have read something in Swahili from a completely different century. But there's a lot here, but 
we're not going to take time to go into it today. Just let me tell you this in order that we could go on. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They didn't like each other. No duh, right? I went to a lot of school to be able to tell you that. There is a long story behind that, but the Jews essentially believed the Samaritans were half-breeds. They didn't want anything to do with them. And so you would, a lot of times, if you were in northern Israel and you needed to go to southern Israel, you would walk around Samaria, not go through it, because those people were vile, awful, disgusting. You didn't want to be around them. Culturally speaking, Jesus should have never talked to this woman. All right? Now, some other time I'll tell you why, but that's the story. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, and watch this, this gal is sharp. She has a stinging tongue. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and that well's deep. Where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Ouch. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, I imagine he's pointing into the well at this point, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come draw water again. Friends, there are endless ways to share the gospel. There is no one right way. Here, Jesus uses water as an illustration in order to share the gospel. Jesus uses well water to talk about spiritual water. In other words, Jesus takes physical thirsts to describe spiritual thirst. He uses a physical need to pinpoint a spiritual need. Now, this woman had a deep spiritual need. She had guilt and shame. And so she had one image of herself that she was trying to portray, but her real self was very different. She was unaware of it. We're no better. Again, we look to work people, looks, possessions, experiences to satisfy, to quench our thirst, just like this woman was doing. Jesus offered her living water. That is Jesus' way of saying, God can meet your deepest longings. He can quench your thirst. He can satisfy you like nothing else. He can free you from guilt and pride and shame. He can give you peace. He can grant you the ability to sit down on the inside. He can free you from the rat race of trying to find your identity in stuff that can't bear that kind of load. 
come to Him, enjoy Him, and never thirst again. That was Jesus' invitation. But unaware of what He's offering you, we, like this woman, snub Him. We say, oh yeah? Then give me that water. Water that will quench my physical thirst so I'll never have to walk to this well again. She just doesn't get it. Why? This woman was blinded and wrecked by guilt and shame. How do we know that? Well, in just a moment, we'll find out that she went through husbands like you go through t-shirts. She's on number six. And every one of these was an attempt to fix something on the inside. And so she went into a marriage looking for a man to do for her what only God could do. And so it didn't work. It couldn't work. And so she went through man after man after man after man. Also, there's a little detail here that's easy to miss. Earlier in the chapter, we learned that she's at the well in the middle of the day. This wasn't the smart time to go to the well. If you lived in the desert, oh, wait a minute. If you lived to the desert and you couldn't do this to get water, if you had to walk outside of town to a well and carry buckets of water, have you ever done that? Water's kind of heavy. So you wouldn't pick the hottest part of the day to go get water and lug it back to your house. You'd go in the cool of the day. But this woman's there in the middle of the day. What does that tell us? Tells us she wasn't with all the other women when they went to go get water. She was alone. She was culturally shamed. She didn't fit in. So her relationship with men not only broke her heart, it broke her relationships with other women. What Jesus offers her is freedom from the wrath of God that she deserved for those actions. See, the guilt, pride, and shame we live in are not helpful and they're not honoring to God. So look at what Jesus says to her, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have you now is not your husband. Here's where Jesus cuts to her heart. If you went to Barnes & Noble today, the biggest category of book is what? Self-help. Our culture's answer to this woman's problem is to look inside yourself and to find self-esteem. The problem with that is you're looking internal and that's where the actual problem lies. So it's not going to work. I think in most churches today we would expect self-help. We would hear something like this. We would expect Jesus to say, God loves you. Don't judge yourself. Yeah, you're on your sixth man. That's okay. It's no big deal. They weren't nice people anyway. 
It doesn't matter how many times you've been divorced or who you're sleeping with. God loves you. Just hug him because he's hugging you. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he brings out a gentle sledgehammer. He exposes her need for living water. He peels back the airbrushed version of herself and says, you're a wicked sinner. But there's hope. There's love. There's forgiveness that can be offered to you. Not by ignoring that stuff, but through it. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that you're the Messiah who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am speaking. I who am speaking to you am he. This is the moment where she believes. Where calm, cleansing, healing, refreshing, life-giving water rushes over her where it no longer matters that she's had six men who none of whom could satisfy her because now she has God who has and forever will. Hope and peace and worship and love and relationship with God, she now finds them in God instead of in someone else. How do we know that? We'll look down at verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever had, all that I ever did. So this woman left this conversation, rushed to town, and begins exclaiming to everyone, Listen to what he told me. He told me I'm a horrible, awful, wretched sinner. Why would she do that? It's because he rescued her from her guilt and her shame. He set her free. He gave her life. The thirst that she'd always had, that she'd tried everything else to quench, Jesus now satisfied. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to this woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it ourselves. And we know that He indeed is the Savior of the world. Friends, are you thirsty? Are you drinking in what cannot quench your thirst? Have all the wells of peace and satisfaction and accomplishments and freedom you've been drawing water from left you wanting? Despite all of your best efforts, are you still propping up an airbrushed version of yourself in order to deal with your guilt and pride and shame? If so, then you're like everybody else in the room. And God's invitation to you today is not stay away. It's not obey the rules. It's not try a little harder. 
It's come to me. And I will give you life-giving, living water. Drink deep from the forgiveness offered by me. Admit that you've been worshiping yourself and turning to everything but God. Confess that you believe Jesus came and died and rose again. And pledge your life to him by his power. And you'll be saved. You'll have life-giving water. If you've never done that, you can do it now, right where you are. And maybe you already have, but you've left somehow mentally the the life-giving spring that God has put in you. You've quit drawing from it. And you've returned to the cesspools and drinking in the stuff that can't work. Jesus' invitation to you is the same. Come back to the gospel and drink deep from him. Let's pray. God, we're all like the woman in that story. We've all sought to fix what's broken in us. To deafen the noise of guilt, pride, and shame through something else. And every time it's not worked. It seemed to work for a little while, but the honeymoon always ends. And your invitation to us today is come to me. Drink deep from me. Accept my offer of forgiveness and find life in me. And I pray, God, that you would do a miracle, that you would take my very feeble attempt and you would speak life-giving words to every person here today and that they would know exactly how these truths apply to their hearts. And they would have the courage to, to respond. That they would have the drive to respond in faith and in repentance. And that literally, God, not a single person would leave without drinking deep from your living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. For those who are believers, as Chuck has talked about, our identity is wrapped up completely in Christ. Uh, Scripture over and over says that we are in Christ. And that's one of the reasons why we're called Christians, right? So when we reflect on the cross, when we look at the cross, uh, we are overwhelmed at the amazing love that Jesus had for us, that he was willing to allow his body to be broken for us, to shed his blood for our sins. And when we reflect on that, when we reflect on the cross, we realize not just his amazing love, but we also realize our true worth and our true value, how valuable we really are 
to Jesus, that he was willing to do that for us. We see our identity when we look at the cross. So one of the best ways for us to reflect on and realize is to do what Jesus commanded us to do, to look at, uh, take the Lord's Supper, reflect on the sacrifice that he made. And so that's what we're going to do here in a moment. You'll notice there's uh, four communion stations around the auditorium, two at the back, two at the front. They each have the elements, the, the bread representing the body and the cup representing the blood of Jesus. And in a moment after I read a passage, I'm going to ask you to go as, as families or as groups, as individuals, to take the elements, uh, come back and, and go ahead and eat and, and drink, and then uh, finish up with, with singing. And there will be, I'm going to ask the pastors, uh, staff, leadership, if you would be at the front and at the back during this time, we'd love to be able to pray with you. If you would like prayer, if you'd like to share something with us, we'd love to be able to, to do that with you uh, during this time of taking communion. So let's stand and let me read God's word in preparation for sharing communion together. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's go ahead and observe the Lord's Supper. Mm 